1: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you today, including should Canadians be required to show proof of COVID vaccination to attend a concert, a sporting event, a festival. Other countries have done it. Now in Canada, we see the first big event bringing in the similar requirement at the Calgary Stampede, the very popular Nashville North Country Music Bar. This is a big uh, tent. We go to hear country music, very, very popular. Why not? That's what you want to do when you go to the Calgary Stampede. So they've brought in a rule there. Now you'd have to show proof of vaccination or... A rapid test for COVID to get inside. I wonder how that's going to go over with the rodeo fans. And could it expand other big events across Canada? We're going to talk about that today on the show. That's coming up at the bottom of this hour. We got all that and lots more. But first, we start with another big event, and that's this year's PNE. And it's been scaled back this year because of COVID. But can the PNE hang on into the future now yesterday pne workers staged a rally to save their jobs they're looking for government assistance here to hang on have a listen to this here now this is laura balance a spokesperson for the pne uh, seeking eight million dollars in help here have a listen
0: we are the place where british columbians have come after the great depression after the first world war and after the second world war to come together again and um we are very dedicated to being that place again. So to have to ask for help is incredibly hard.
1: A balance there from the PNE getting emotional as she talks about the struggles faced by the annual fall fair. They're looking for $8 million in assistance. There's political squabbling going on over this one. Uh, the provincial government saying it's the city of Vancouver's responsibility. The city pointing at the province saying they should help out. Meanwhile, people afraid of losing their jobs. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Ian Payton, a Liberal MLA for Delta South. He's the official opposition critic for agriculture and food, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ian, thanks a lot for coming on.
2: Thanks, Mike. Good morning.
1: Okay, can you give me your take on the PNE? I know this has been a big part of uh, your family's uh, life in the in the agriculture and farming business, <laughs> right?
2: Uh, correct, Mike. Uh, I actually did a two minute statement in the legislature about three or four weeks ago about my family's involvement in the PE, and I held up a blue ribbon uh, that my grandfather, one of the ribbons he won in 1938 uh, at the PE, showing cattle and showing horses, which has traditionally been going on at the PE for years. It started out basically as an agricultural fair. Uh, So as a dairy farming family, my grandfather, my father, myself have all showed cattle and horses at the Peony. My brother was the official veterinarian at the Peony. So we go way back. I even belong, Mike, I'm a director for about 35 years for a a program called BC Youth and Agriculture, which is run by the Peony. That uh, we raise money and we dole out money to uh, youth in agricultural programs throughout the province. So, yeah, my family's been very involved with the PNE for years, and uh, it's, it's important to agriculture to keep this thing going.
1: Okay, I know you're at the rally for to save the PNE. What is the threat here to this fair? Like, could it actually really go under?
2: Well, I mean, you heard the emotion in Laura Balance's voice just a, a minute ago on your show and we had a great long chat with Laura yesterday and with Shelley Frost who's the president of the PNE and I mean this this fair is very near and dear to people all over the province I mean over the years you've seen on global and CTV and different programs where they interview couples that go this is our 54th year that we've attended the PNE and and it's it's you know, to some people it's a big deal, and to a lot of people in Vancouver that don't have a ton of money, it's a very, uh, let's say, inexpensive way to. you pay your ticket to get in and everything's pretty much free for the rest of the day, including concerts, uh, you get to watch draft horse demonstration, demonstrations, cow milking demonstrations, and kids and people from all over the city get to see interactive agricultural displays in the in the agriculture barns and learn a bit about agriculture and get to pet goats and sheep and rabbits and all sorts of things
1: right i'm just wondering though if if this is genuinely in like an existential crisis for the pne i mean this is a non-profit organization yeah we've gone through very two difficult years but why would they be threatened with like going under and never coming back i mean have they got bank loans due or something i mean what's the situation there
2: Well, Mike, according to Laura Balance, the media relations person... Uh, the p e is basically in debt to fifteen million dollars so think about uh-huh. it here 's the P&E every year that struggles to sort of make a decent profit each year depending on how much rain there is and what the attendance is so suddenly you lose two years of business because of the pandemic where the p is totally closed and suddenly they 're in hawk for fifteen million dollars and they're only they figure they can survive if they could get eight million from the province and right. we have stood up as a bc liberal party time and time again and said look we got some major attractions that contribute millions of dollars to the economy, including the P&E, including fairs and rodeos all over B.C., and John Horgan and the NDP are contributing nothing to these people.
1: Well, they put a million bucks up, didn't they?
2: Yeah, and everybody's still waiting for it, believe it or not. Oh. They're saying, well, you know, if you did apply, and if we get, we'll we we'll let you know by the end of July, well, most of these events take place in the summer, and everyone's supposed to wait till mid-summer to find out even if they get the money. Yeah, so that's ridiculous.
1: Okay, speaking to Liberal MLA, Ian Payton, about the troubles at the PNE. Speaking of Premier John Horgan, he was a guest here on the show uh, a while back. We talked about this issue with the PNE. I asked him why they're not getting any more help, and uh, here's what he had to say.
3: They are getting a significant amount of funding, and they have... uh, Not as much as they need. Well, the the city of Vancouver is responsible for the PNE, and uh, I, I would like to see what the plan is in Vancouver, uh, rather than just turning to Victoria and saying, "How do we solve these problems
1: okay, so what do you think about that he 's pointing a finger at the at this uh, city of Vancouver. I mean the city of Vancouver is responsible for the p n e right
2: yeah, but the province is responsible. The government is responsible. For the economic drivers in this province. And one is the PE that brings in $200 million to our economy every year. And 90, get this one, 9,600 jobs year round, including almost 3,000 jobs for young people. And the PE is very adamant about hiring young people that may be uh, youth at risk or have some language problems. And they really care about getting people involved. So I don't care whether it's the PE or whether it's. W- whatever. I, as, a, as a politician, I support the government moving forward to save jobs, keep people working and keep our economy up and going and give people some entertainment, a place to go to in the summer. Yeah. And Mike, who hasn't gone to a concert, an outdoor concert at the P&E or done some of the things that very memorable? One of the greatest concerts I've ever seen was a couple of years ago and you'll remember the Doobie Brothers, Mike. It was, oh, it sure. was just so fun right. to see them for free at the oh, P&E. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I've seen some great shows down there, too, and I, I agree with you. I think it would be tragic and a shame if, if uh, the P&E went away. And, 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 and Mike, if you don't yeah, mind me jumping ahead, in,
2: sure. uh, there are people that would just love to see the p shut down, so we'd lose all the opportunity to, to see who? Agriculture. who Who wants, who wants that? Who oh, come about? on. For years, I've had to go to the Peony and, and fight for the Peony because people would rather see the Peony completely bullsed over, become a green space, or be covered in condominiums. So mm-hmm. let's leave it the way it is as far as I'm concerned. Who are, they,
1: who are these people? People in the neighborhood don't like people coming in and parking outside their house or something, or what?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the, yeah. this. I've been involved in the Peony way back to the days of Ian Aikenhead and Erwin Swangard and, and Annette Antoniak. Like, there's been people over the years who would would love to see the P&E uh, shut down.
1: Okay, let me play this clip here for you, get your thoughts on it. This is Andrew Ledger from the CUPE Union, represents a lot of the workers down there, uh, talking about trying to save jobs at the p and
3: not just for
4: this season, but for seasons to come, because they're going to be saddled with this debt. That's going to mean, you know, less uh, investment in new... Uh, you know, events and rides and things like that, and also less work for our members. And that's that's the real tragedy of this, because, you know, the people who work at the P&E, there's a lot of seasoned workers who are, who are coming in who are, you know, new Canadians, young workers, They're the largest employer of youth in the province. I mean, to, to have less work opportunities for those for those, you know, people who are desperate for work to save for school or or start a new uh, life in Canada, like these jobs are so valuable to our community.
1: Okay, that's the uh, representative of the union down there trying to save jobs at the PNE. Bottom line, Ian Payton, you're you're calling on the BC government what to put the eight million dollars on the table? Correct?
2: Well, absolutely, Mike. And I mean, okay. come on, this NDP government—they we, we when we lost the election in 2017, we left them with a 2.7 billion dollar surplus. Now they've created about a 10 billion dollar deficit. They're throwing around money like it's monopoly money, and we're well, now just you want them mi- to
1: throw around more money?
2: Eight million dollars is. You know, in the long run, to save an iconic uh, uh, main attraction such as the P&E, the way they're spending money, $8 million wouldn't be the end of the world to save the P&E.
1: Ian Payton, thanks for coming on today. Anytime. Thanks, Mike. All right. Got a little Calgary Stampede music there. And when the Nashville North venue opens tonight at the Calgary Stampede, it will be the first major venue in Canada to require proof of vaccination or a COVID-19 rapid test before people are allowed inside. Now, Nashville North is a country music venue at the Calgary Stampede. Very large, very popular, and why not? It's a great place. People love going there. for they got big crowds, live music, and they will have the first restrictions of this kind in Canada a proof of vaccination to be shown at the door or you have to take a rapid test and and test negative for covid to get inside i wonder how this is going to go over with the rodeo fans take a listen to this now this is jim lauren vice president of park planning at the calgary stampede
3: for nashville north only in partnership with 19 to 0 thanks to dr who's leadership we are announcing today that we will require guests to show proof of vaccination or take a free rapid test to gain entry again to nashville north
1: okay nashville north opening tonight at the calgary stampede all right should other big venues and events across the country do the same thing sporting events concerts music festivals should you be required to show proof of vaccination to get in the door. Let's discuss now with my guest, Amir Adaran. Amir is a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Amir, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Amir, what do you think about the Calgary Stampede and what they're doing here at the Nashville North venue? Look,
4: I I have mixed feelings. I think they've set a good precedent by saying unless you do your part, for public health, you're just not getting in. You you cannot attend this event unless you do your part for public health. That is the right thing to do. But I think their measures are pretty scientifically weak. They're allowing in people who have had only one dose of vaccine, which is, you know, frankly, half-assed, it's half-vaccinated. And they're also relying on the rapid tests which are not exactly the best tests out there so good idea to require some public health measures and other places should should do likewise but pretty poor implementation
1: okay some people would think this goes too far but you clearly think it does not go far enough what kind of system do you think they should put in place
4: well you should require full vaccination period two doses right? I, I mean, to use an analogy, we've all seen the signs that say, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. This is the, this is the scientific equivalent now at the stampede of saying, well, shoes alone will be good enough or a shirt will be good enough. We don't really care if you have both. We're only requiring one dose of vaccine, not two. I mean, what kind of scientific idiocy is that? We know clearly that a single dose of some vaccines barely protects against the spread of disease. That's true, especially of the AstraZeneca. Mm. So, you know, requiring one dose rather than two, when at this point in time everybody has had the opportunity or or you know maybe you have to put some work into it, but they could have got a second dose by now. That's just an unprincipled approach.
1: Okay, it's interesting to see this happening in Canada. We've seen other countries go down the, a similar road here with these type of rules and restrictions. This is the first big event in Canada to require it. I, I find it interesting it's happening in Alberta, where it would appear to be there's maybe maybe more vaccine hesitancy in Alberta than maybe other parts of the country. So it'll be interesting to see how people respond to this idea. But do you think it should be expanded to other events? And, wh- and what kind of events Absolutely. should be covered? Absolutely.
4: Any mass gathering requires this. And, you know, we've seen New York State implement a vaccine passport. They call it the Excelsior Pass. You need to be vaccinated to go to a major event in New York, period. Likewise, Israel has done this. Some European countries have done this. Canada needs to get with the program. I mean, everything about our coronavirus response has always been a day late and a dollar short. We eventually do the right thing, but we we seem to always want to kill a few people before we get to the right thing by doing the wrong thing first. And yet again, we're seeing that pattern play out where some institutions simply don't want to require vaccination. Others, like the Stampede, are wiser about it, but then they blow it on the details and and invite in half vaccinated people i mean come on everyone knows where this is headed you're going to need to be fully vaccinated for for the purposes of being a full participant in society
1: this is okay obvious. well
4: why are I, we I, fighting
1: it i'm not sure it's heading in that direction actually when you when you take a look at some of the comments that have been made by uh, prime minister justin trudeau and other federal officials it didn't seem really thrilled with this particular idea, and of course, you're going to get the arguments around personal freedoms and civil liberties, and I suspect something like this is going to be challenged in court uh, at some point. Like, it what would, what do you say to those concerns? Look, in court, it wouldn't stand a chance. You don't have a
4: right. You just don't have a right to threaten the health of others. Period. And an institution like the Stampede, it's not the government. The private event. Private clubs have always been able to decide who they let in and who they don't. This is nothing new. So, I mean, let the people who want to challenge it in court, waste their time and money. They'll come out of it looking like fools. I say that as a lawyer and law professor, as well as a scientist and immunologist, go ahead and fight it if you want, but you're going to lose. And, and so far in this pandemic, Things have been moving in one direction towards greater vaccination. They're not going to move backwards.
1: It's not going to happen. Do you think that there's any risk of, at a time when we have, I would say a minority of the population that are hesitant or worried, or they're you know small, hardcore anti-vaxxer portion of the population, but some people are just simply hesitant or worried about taking the vaccine, that if you take kind of these sort of tough measures that that pushes them even more into the anti-vax camp? Like, I'm thinking of someone who might be kind of wobbling on the fence about whether to get the vaccine, and then they see rules like this and say, to hell with it, I'm not going to be pushed around by the government.
4: Well, you know what? I don't call those people hesitant. I call them scientifically illiterate. Mm -hmm. Because the evidence is clear that vaccination works. People who at this point continue to deny it simply don't, understand science and we don't i hope in canada we don't govern our society for the most illiterate least educated people we try instead to govern society in an intelligent way and that means vaccination now there will be those who refuse to get vaccinated and it is their choice i i freely grant you have a choice not to be vaccinated but that doesn't mean then that society is going to be fully open to you,
1: and it shouldn't be. Where do you draw because
4: the line? Not vaccinating, you threaten yeah. the health of others.
1: Where do you draw the line on it, though? Like, okay, so here we have a, a country music bar is the first in Canada to say you can't come in without proof of vaccination or a negative rapid test. But what would you include in that category? Okay, so let's like sporting events, music concerts, music festivals, like other just what about going into a restaurant or or going to work out in a in a gymnasium Should, that's be... sort
4: of that's the sort of thing where Israel is requiring proof of vaccination and yeah. i think they're right you know and also congregate settings say dormitories universities mm. right this is another example of where canada is just knuckle draggingly backwards i mean in in the world's best universities vaccination is mandatory and i mean Berkeley, Caltech, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, the world's best, they all require everyone to be vaccinated if they want to attend. Have we seen a single university in Canada do this? No. What What does this tell you? It tells you we're backwards and we're just not part of the world's best until we make these decisions.
1: Last question for you. I suspect a a debate is coming on this issue. We've got an election very likely looming in the fall. Do you think this should be a ballot box issue? I mean, do you think the political leaders in the country should make their positions clear on it?
4: Well, I, I certainly think that what this epidemic, what this pandemic has taught us is being scientifically backwards has a desperately high price. You know, we didn't get vaccines in this country for months later than the United States or the United Kingdom, our closest allies. Why? Because we were scientifically backwards and we couldn't manufacture them in time and we didn't try and we just fumbled it. I think the ballot box issue should be, are we going to make this a scientifically advanced country or aren't we? And every leader should have an opinion on this because our lives depend on it. This is not the last pandemic I expect to see in my lifetime. There will be others, and the next one could be worse. So we better be prepared, and that is something that every politician must address going into the next election.
1: Okay, we'll see where it goes from here. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it
4: thanks so much for having me
1: here we go now with the biggest cyber attack and ransomware demands yet by international cyber gangs and criminals this one's been called the biggest yet it happened friday believed to have hit hundreds maybe thousands of companies in at least 17 countries some of the damage in sweden 800 supermarkets shut down after their cash registers stopped working In New Zealand, 100 schools knocked offline after their computer networks were infected. The hackers demanding $70 million U.S. in Bitcoin to fix the damage. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada and Informatica Security. He's one of Canada's top experts, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Claudio, thanks a lot for coming on.
5: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, you bet. Claudio, the last time we had you on a few weeks ago, you said get ready. There could be more of these attacks coming. They could be even bigger. And you were absolutely right. So where does this one rank for you? Is this correct? This has been called the biggest ever. Is that where you rank it?
6: Uh, well, so we don 't uh, think in terms of size as we think in terms of reach and yes, this is one of the one of the top two that we can think of and the The previous uh, uh record holder was just a few months ago. you may recall with the solar winds uh this, the, faulty vulnerability, the faulty technology that had significant vulnerabilities that allowed um, hackers and extortionists to access the clients of SolarWinds. The same thing happened this, this past week with Kaseya, which produces uh, technology that allows service providers to manage IT for thousands of clients around the world and of course when that when that uh, technology is compromised all of those clients operations are suddenly uh, impacted in this case they are paralyzed wow. and that's not a great situation to be and i know they say you know uh, any exposure is good exposure uh, or any publicity is good publicity but that's not the kind of brand recognition you want
1: no, that's for sure. This Kaseya company, man, they must be in a world of hurt here right now. Now, you talk about a prime target. I mean, if the if the hackers can get into a company that's supplying software to thousands of other companies, I mean, like that's like hitting the mother load, isn't
6: it? It absolutely is, and, and yeah. it's a sign of the times. Uh, you didn't see this kind of thing 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you didn't have companies actively looking to relinquish control of their entire organization to perfect strangers and today you've got everyone and their dog creating uh, companies from scratch in some cases and just looking to outsource the entire IT function well in today's world everything depends on IT so the entire company comes to a halt as you said with um, retail and, and grocery chains uh, being most visibly impacted, but there are just hundreds. Uh, I think an estimated 1600, uh, company at last count, but that was Caseya itself that was, uh, estimating this. And they also added that they have 37 or 38,000, uh, clients. So no one actually knows the extent, the full extent of this, uh, uh, of this cyber crime, I want to say.
1: Okay, unbelievable. So you got hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of companies impacted here, and then the ransom demand comes next to undo the damage. Have any of these companies actually paid the ransom? Do we know?
6: There's no evidence that any of the companies has paid at the moment. I think there's some jockeying for position as to whether Kaseya will pay on behalf of their clients or whether the individual thousands of victims are uh, Scrambling to come up with Bitcoin or Monero to pay off the extortionists. Either way, it's a huge mess. And as you can imagine, the insurance companies involved are uh, terrified, quite frankly, because so many uh, extortion attempts that need to be uh, addressed need to be covered. You're, we're in a situation where the insurance industry has said that this, the costs for uh, policies are going to skyrocket this year because so many companies are negligent in how they adopt security and they just rely on having a an insurance policy to 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 uh, to cover them uh, so many insurance companies are impacted as well as a secondary Uh, victim of this large-scale event not to mention the personal information of all the customers of all these thousands of clients like those grocery chains that you mentioned that uh, that are really the victims here because their personal identities uh, tend to be stolen and exploited years after the fact
1: has Canada been hit at all in this attack
6: uh, yes, uh, Canada has been hit. Uh, we've had reports of a number of companies that uh, have reported to us that they were using, uh, Kaseya technology and, uh, and that they've had, uh, significant impact as a result. Um, in Canada, it's a little tricky uh, because uh, it's, the legislation has only changed recently to force organizations to adopt technology that allows them to see what's going on on their own networks. So a lot of these companies don't have visibility. They don't really necessarily know the full extent of the, uh, of the breach. In some cases, they might still be infected, but the pop-up has not come up on their screen to say now you have to pay so it's it's a little bit tricky to determine the full impact and i think it's going to be weeks or months before the entire uh, before the smoke clears
1: okay who is this uh this gang this cyber gang that is claiming responsibility for this they're they call themselves reval and we talked about this these people the last time you're on the show reval who are these people
6: Well, they're uh, thought to be a Russian uh, group. Uh, There's no uh, official indication of whether they have ties to the government, but they're a particularly aggressive, um, uh, I guess, gang of... um, Indications are showing us that they're a distributed gang, so they may be in a number of countries, mostly in Russia. Um, These guys develop software that is uh, uh, that's particularly malicious. It uses very strong encryption to uh, both penetrate a network and to expand laterally. So effectively, it it scans, it looks for as many computers as possible, it infects them and paralyzes them after stealing their information. The way they get to all these uh, companies is they use a an army of affiliates and those affiliates for them, it's just a part-time job. They send out spam messages to any number of lists that they can get their hands on. And if people click on links, all it takes is one click and it can infect the entire uh, company with respect to Caseya itself. The, the, um, the situation may have been slightly different in that, it, uh, it may have been one actual hacker that penetrated the Caseya organization itself and introduced a backdoor or took advantage of a vulnerability in this technology to introduce right. a virus in it. And that's how it got propagated to the entire world, just by virtue of Kaseya itself uh, spreading that technology, that faulty technology.
1: Okay, Claudio, the last question for you. When your clients come to you, if they've been infected by one of these ransomware attacks, how do you, what do you advise them to do? Do you advise them to pay the ransom or, or not?
6: Um, if the company is paralyzed and they cannot recover by their own means within a couple of days, then they don't really have a, a choice but to pay the ransom. Uh, otherwise, they go out of business. Uh, in mm. most cases where there's a cyber liability insurance policy, the insurance company will pay for it today, although the space is moving towards a model where they might just refuse to pay ransoms. But today, if if you're covered by insurance, then you may be all right, uh, but it still may take one or two days to recover all of that data because it needs to be decrypted once you purchase the key from these criminals. So it's a pretty big mess all around. And it serves to remind Canadian companies that they should not outsource willy-nilly their entire IT operations to strangers who have way too much access. And obviously they can have a, a huge impact on uh, on the business as a whole, not to mention the customer's information.
1: Okay, man, these hackers getting more brazen, more bold, it seems, by the day. Claudio, thank you for coming on. I suspect we'll have you back on in the future when the, when the next one hits. Appreciate <laughs> your time today.
6: My pleasure, Mike.
1: Okay, Claudio Popa there, cyber security expert. He's one of the top experts in Canada. A lot of pressure on the Joe Biden administration in the United States to get to the bottom of these continuing ransomware attacks. A lot of fingers being pointed at the Russians. This cyber gang that's claiming uh, responsibility for this latest massive attack based in Russia. Here's uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, commenting on this.
7: First of all, we're not sure who it is. The director of the intelligence community give me a, a deep dive on what's happened, and I'll know better uh, tomorrow. And if it is uh, either with the knowledge of and or a consequence of Russia, then I told Putin we will respond. We're not certain. The initial thinking was it was not the Russian government
1: okay putin of course has denied that he any responsibility for these cyber attacks and ransomware attacks but of course he would say that wouldn't he obviously these kind of attacks destabilize a lot of russia's geopolitical political enemies and rivals right we're keeping a close eye on that all right welcome back to the show these online scammers have absolutely no shame or morals at all they will steal from you they will rip you off They don't care how vulnerable or desperate you are. You are just a target to them. As a matter of fact, the more vulnerable you are, the bigger the target you become. Check this one out now. An online scam selling what they advertise as high-end wigs made with human hair. Cancer victims especially vulnerable to this scam. Imagine having cancer you lose your hair from radiation treatments and you get targeted by an online scam like this. This is about as low as it can go. Let's check in with Carla Laird now from the Better Business Bureau and they are warning people about this scam. Carla, it's nice to have you on again. Thanks so much for having me Mike. Okay Carla, these scammers, they they never cease to shock me just how low they will go. Tell me how this one works.
0: So unfortunately what has been happening is persons who are interested in wigs, whether it's for fashionable purposes or in the case of cancer victims who, like you said, have lost their hair due to radiation treatment and so are trying to maintain a sense of normalcy, still have their self confidence, they're hunting for wigs that will allow them to still have that appearance that makes them feel good about themselves. And so, in searching for these wigs, some of them will stumble into ads that are posted on social media platforms, specifically Instagram and Facebook. And you engage with the person who's um, running the platform. You explain to them in some instances that you are a cancer victim and you're trying to find the right wig to carry you through this journey that you have to go through. And you, some of them will give you discounts and say, you know, I understand what your situation, I know the wig is expensive, I know how it will impact your life. Here's a discount. And you spend up to $500, $600 sometimes thinking you're going to get a high end or a high quality wig. And what you end up with is something that's sub seriously substandard or it's a case where you don't receive the product at all or when you get it you're looking at it it's the, the it's synthetic hair which means that you can't heat it you can't flat iron it you can't do anything with it and it's ultimately a waste of your money and you can't hear from them afterwards
1: well talk about victimizing people when they're at their most vulnerable and at their lowest when they're fighting cancer and they've got to go through something like this i just find that that appalling you know these scammers though carla as you have warned us many times they seem to be getting more and more sophisticated like how do people get tricked and fooled by these by these pitches
0: so one of the things we have noticed is that they tend to put these specific ads on platforms where they know especially older audiences aren't 100% familiar or comfortable or know how to navigate or even identify a a real account or a real business account on social media versus a fake one. And so just looking at some of these profiles, you might see their posts, they might have hundreds of likes. Um, They might have several comments that seem to be speaking positively about the business or about that specific account but they're just taking everything that they see at face value and that's Part of the problem, because many of the victims afterwards said when they did research or they started to really expand outside of that web, that that um, social media account, that's when they were seeing the scam warnings um, posted by other consumers that have interacted with this account. And so it's important that you do your research because failing that, you run the risk of spending hundreds of dollars for something that you're going to be disappointed with, or sometimes no product at all, and they are impossible to reach after the fact.
1: Yeah, like once you've given them your money, you've got no hope of getting any restitution, right? So I mean, once you've been burned on this thing, there's no no going back. How can people protect themselves? You just got a minute here, Carla. Like, what would you recommend for people who are looking for like, you know, a high end wig like this, maybe a cancer victim or someone they know? How can they protect themselves?
0: So references are a great place to start. Reach out to other persons who are in your circle or as if you're going through these kinds of treatment, you will stumble into people that have found a, a product that works for them. Find out where they got theirs from. Um, so that's one great place to start. If you are going on social media, you must take time to review that account. That Account. Double check the information. Don't just read the first five comments that you see. Read through everything that is there because you will find persons that are trying to warn you if there's something of, of concern there. And don't just take all positive comments as a, as a sign to go ahead and make a purchase because ultimately the scammers can control what you see. And at the end of the day, do your research and make sure you are using the right payment method. And for us, sure. anything you're doing online, use a credit card.
1: Carla, great advice as always. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Britney Spears saga now, the pop star's legal battle to remove her father, Jamie Spears, from the court-approved conservatorship that controls her finances and her career. In court last month, bombshell testimony from Britney Spears herself. She claimed her father and others have forced her to work ceaselessly Seven days a week, no days off. She compared it to sex trafficking. She also testified that she'd been given drugs like lithium against her will and that she was not allowed to get married or have another child. Okay, latest twists and turns on this. Britney Spears' court-appointed lawyer this week has resigned. She had been asking to hire her own lawyer. Now Britney Spears' mother, Lynn Spears, waiting into this one now appealing to the courts to allow her daughter to hire her own lawyer as this unbelievable, this incredible legal battle just continues to unfold in court here. Okay, let's see, get some analysis now with my guest, Chris Tritico. Chris is a lawyer and legal analyst based in Houston, Texas. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. You bet. Good to be here. Okay, Chris, man, where do we start with this thing? I mean, this is just such a tangled web. Can can you, first of all, can you explain and kind of Uh, easy to understand language like why britney spears is in this predicament in the first place this conservatorship like why is this happening
3: well let's harken back about uh, 11 12 years ago when britney was completely melting down and and we all remember we all saw what she was doing and the way her life was spiraling out of control and i think that at that time she clearly needed help and wouldn't get it and so the the conservatorship then i think was truly necessary and when her family stepped in and got the court to intervene that was probably a necessary event at that time is it necessary today is is the question that britney's asking and it's probably it's probably a valid question why am i still under this conservatorship and why is my dad still controlling my life when when i don't need it anymore and the, the one question that came out of that testimony that I thought was a valid point that Brittany made was, no one told me in all this time that I had a right to fire this guy and get my own lawyer. And that is negligence, in my view, on the part of that court-appointed lawyer, not to have advised her that she had the right to seek her independent counsel. And that, that was a shame.
1: Okay, the public interest in this case has really gone up ever since the uh, release uh, earlier this year of a documentary film called Framing Britney Spears, put together by the New York Times. And we've also had on social media the Free Britney, hashtag Free Britney movement as her fans rally to her support to try to end this conservatorship. We saw this week, Chris, the her court-appointed attorney Uh, filed documents to resign from the conservatorship. What is the relevance of that?
3: Well, the the relevance of that, I think, is is her pointing out that he had never given her the absolute advice that she should have gotten, that she had the right to seek independent advice. He was appointed by the court. But when you're appointed by the court, your duty is not to the court. It's not to her father. That duty is solely to her, and and it seemed the way the testimony was coming out that he wasn't giving her independent advice just for her, and, and I, th- I think it, he felt like it was exposed that he was breaching that duty, and at that point he had a du- he has a he has an obligation to withdraw and let her get independent advice that will benefit just her. I think he did the right thing finally.
1: Yeah, and she has been uh, asking to for the right to hire her own attorney which to me seems like just basically fundamental you should be able to hire your own legal counsel it's interesting to see britney spears's mother now lynn spears wading into this and effectively backing up her daughter and, and saying she should be allowed to choose her own attorney what kind of difference do you think that could make with her mother getting involved now
3: well i think they're going to see a change in the way in the way this conservatorship is handled now that britney is is using her own voice and she's going to have the backing of her mother, who will come in and and add an additional voice and more strength to Britney's cause. And this idea that that she's got this IUD forced on her, and and and, and they're saying you can't have a, another child. Yeah. Uh, this, this is <laughs> this is this is just in opposite of what we of, of what we live by. And if, if anybody's not offended by it, by a father saying you you are not allowed to have a child, I, I don't I don't understand. It's, it's why I don't practice law in foreign countries like California.
1: <laughs> well, it is a shocking case for sure. Um, and we saw, like you know, in the early days of the conservatorship, I don't know. You could make the argument that maybe it seemed to be working well. She sort of started working again. She had a hit show going in Las Vegas, and now though she hasn't performed in a long time, and there, there's a lot of speculation that. Who knows? Maybe she'll never perform again. Is there any indication that her career just might be over?
3: Well, she did. Somebody announced, I thought it was her, last week that she was going to retire. I don't know yeah. if that was Brittany announcing she was retiring or, or, her, or, or her father announcing she was retiring. But we'll see how this shakes out. You hear from famous people all the time, I'm retiring, and it turns out to be a publicity stunt to, to uh, announce actually another another uh, another tour yeah. but i britney really needs uh, time away from everybody her father uh these people that are, that are controlling her life and i think she needs to get away from all those people get a new set of people to help her and and decide what she wants for her life with people who are really looking out just for britney's best interest okay. and that that are separate from the people that have been controlling her and let Brittany make decisions about Britney's best interest, and then she can decide if she works to continue in show business.
1: Last question for you, Chris. The documentary film that came out, viewed by millions of people around the world, I think it gave a lot of people a new perspective on this legal case. We see the social media movement Uh, trying to overturn the conservatorship on on Britney Spears. What is your gut feeling on this as a lawyer and a legal analyst and where this is going? I mean, do you think at at one point that conservatorship will be overturned? She'll be allowed to hire her own lawyer, maybe take control of her life and career again? Or do you think that conservatorship will remain in place?
3: No, I think that that eventually she's going to, and soon she's going to be allowed to hire her own lawyer. And with that, there'll be a fresh look at whether or not her father should continue to be her conservator. A conservatorship is designed to, uh, to, to look after the best interest of, of in this case, Brittany. And if uh, a new lawyer comes in and can show the judge that her father is not actually looking out for her best interest, yeah. then we can begin, begin to chip away at that conservatorship and bring somebody in who actually will. And that, that's, what we'll be, that's what the court will begin to look at.
1: Okay, fascinating case. We continue to follow it. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on with your analysis today.
3: You
1: bet, anytime. I appreciate it. That's Chris Tritico there. He's a lawyer and a legal analyst, and I'm pleased he could join us on the show today. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about U.S. President Donald Trump suing some of the heavyweights of social media, claiming he has been discriminated against and censored online. Uh, The former U.S. president on Wednesday filing a lawsuit action targeting the CEOs of this company. Yes, he is suing Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, he's suing Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, also going after the CEOs at YouTube. Wow. Where is this suit going to go? Have a listen to this. This is uh, the former president here announcing the lawsuit.
5: Today, in conjunction with the America First Policy Institute, I'm filing as the lead class representative a major class action lawsuit against the big tech giants, including Facebook, Google, and Twitter, as well as their CEOs Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai, and Jack
6: Dorsey.
1: Oh, okay, is Mark Zuckerberg shaking in his boots here? Trump is coming to get him. Let's check in with Jesse Miller now. Founder of Mediated Reality, he's a social media expert, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jesse. Hey
5: Mike,
1: how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Is Trump got a chance here in these lawsuits? Can these can this actually succeed? Not a chance in any way, shape, or form. This is, <laughs> this
5: is as stupid as it sounds. He believes that his First Amendment rights are being encroached on by him being limited or shadow banned from the social media platforms. And uh, what he, I mean, he's really failing to recognize here is that the First Amendment works in, in public spaces, not in private companies. And uh, he's not necessarily being encroached on based on the fact that his terms of service as a user of the platform, he constantly violated them. So within that, all these companies actually have grounds to say, no, your actions on our platform, your actions in our in in our in our companies uh, violated what we expect our community uh, participation to be. And uh, this probably won't go any further than just the public relations piece, which is, you know, Trump having another pulpit to stand at.
1: Yeah. If you take a look at how these companies and social media platforms have all banned Trump, let's look at uh, Twitter. So Trump is basically permanently banned from Twitter. He is suspended from Facebook for at least two years. YouTube suspended Trump in January with a possibility of him being reinstated. I mean, these companies, they have the, do they have the right to ban anybody they want? They do, it, uh, when it comes to the terms of service. So you got to remember, like Facebook has 17
5: pages of agreement when you click that little box and start your profile. But within that, there are a lot of flexibilities in the sense of the relationships they have with individuals. So if you're a political figure, there's obviously certain accountabilities that are in place that Facebook has had to rewrite based on the Trump experience of politics. Uh, but at the same time, when everyday users are there, just because I have an account doesn't give me the ability to go online and conduct harassment or misinformation just because i believe i have the free speech to do that now obviously in canada we have a different approach to how we have free speech and freedom of expression and we're somewhat limited compared to the united states but that doesn't mean that our speech is limited as a whole i just i just can't spew hate to an individual just because i feel like it now in the united states they actually have a little bit more space there to publicly stand in the street and scream at somebody if you want to but on a social media platform which again private company you can't yeah. just arbitrarily decide how you want to participate
1: Okay, I, I imagine Trump and his lawyers will argue that he's been discriminated against, he's been censored because of his his political views, and I maybe I guess he'll argue that big tech has lined up against the, the conservative movement in the, in the United States, but I don't know, I mean, if you take a look at some of the analysis on political content online, on social media platforms, I mean, right-wing voices or conservative voices, have, have, in many cases, have been the most engaged with on, on a lot of these platforms. So, I mean, does he does he have a leg to stand on in arguing that he's being censored because of his political views? Partially and maybe. I mean, the reality of it is, is that you should have the ability to have a political opinion
5: on these platforms. The reasons that he's been suspended or removed have nothing to do with so much as politics, but his ability to engage with his audience and get his audience all kind of riled up and then storm a Capitol. Uh, And that's really what this is. I mean, he was banned essentially from the events of the Capitol riots on January 6th. But the reality of it is is that, yeah, we are seeing individuals who believe that their rights to opinion are being encroached upon. And in that space, if you are a political figure who has the ability to get an audience all riled up, that's where social media websites are actually looking to see what the responsibility is as a platform that's hosting the individual. So we saw it traditionally with media. We saw news agencies that would decide how they were going to give somebody an opportunity to converse with the public. But it wasn't a two way street. And that's where this issue is kind of coming down to a point where we have to reframe what free speech looks like.
1: All right. Speaking of Jesse Miller about Donald Trump's lawsuits against Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I suspect, Jesse, that you are correct, that this would be a hopeless cause for for Trump. But I also suspect Trump probably knows that. And this has more to do with sort of fundraising or or elevating his profile, maybe for another run. Run at president. And I don't think it's necessarily just because of the clarity of the terms of service, but I think there's case law here, too. Right. Like Facebook and Twitter, YouTube, uh, they've all I think they've uh, they've already been sued for this kind of stuff. I mean, people have tried to sue them before saying you censored me. You've been unfair. I was unfairly kicked off of these platforms. And I think they pretty much won every case. They Very not? much,
5: yeah. They have. They've actually okay. gotten to a point where the the courts won't usually see uh, these kind of lawsuits even get to them because it won't it won't uh, be invited into the court process. But what's interesting here, and to your point of fundraising, is that you are seeing an actual calculated effort by the Republican Party right now to kind of fall in line with him calling for his free speech to be kind of addressed. And right now across the board, whether it's in Congress or the Senate, you are seeing GOP members who are positioning conversation with fundraising. So a fool in their money is usually separated pretty quickly with the right uh, individual. And Trump has always been good at getting fools to line his pockets.
1: Yeah, I think Trump wants to run again for, for president. And maybe that's what this is about. You know, just say the big tech companies, are against them so to fight back you should join with me as we continue to to fight back uh but if you take a look in like social media these platforms have been criticized from a lot of different areas uh for some of from on the left have criticized them for not doing enough to to curb harassment online or hate speech online where do you think this is going uh, in the united states in terms of increased regulation and oversight of these uh platforms
5: It's such a slippery slope because, one, we do want to see a safer place for people to come together and engage, and we obviously don't want to see people having to live their life in fear online. But then there's the other side of it, of what does free speech limitation look like on a social media platform? And the thing is, we can't have it both ways. It does have to become a a middle ground. And so, if we accept the fact that somebody should be allowed to go online and not be harassed or doxxed or or just ridiculed just because they have an opinion, um, the other side of it should also be that you shouldn't necessarily be able to go online and just expose whatever you want to say. So within that, we do need better moderation. We do need better community oversight. And to be fair, I'm a big advocate at the end of the day for certain aspects of social media having gating. And so if you are going to be an individual online, you have to basically verify who you are as equally as you would standing in a, a town square and saying, here's my name, here's what I have to say, and be held accountable to what you do in that space.
1: Jesse, thanks for your take on it today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, Mike. Okay, thanks a lot. Jesse Miller there, Mediated Reality. He is a social media expert and analyst. Appreciate his time today. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the devastating fire that consumed the village of Lytton last week. The cause of the fire still under investigation. A of Lytton uh, being allowed to return to the scene there tomorrow on a bus tour. You heard some controversy about that on our newscast. Uh, Meanwhile, the investigation continuing into what caused the fire. Let's discuss now with my guest, Liberal MLA Jackie Taggart. She represents Fraser Nicola in the B.C. Legislature. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Jackie, thank you for coming on once again.
7: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, my sympathies to everyone who's been affected by this uh, in your riding. And I know you had an opportunity to do a flyover over Litton this week, right? Was that on Wednesday?
7: Uh, it was actually on Tuesday. Tuesday,
1: yes. Tuesday. Tuesday Rick, right? can you can you just put that into words? What was that? What did you see up there?
7: Um, it's hard to put into words, and and it is absolutely incredible to look at what fire can do. Um, the The community is absolutely leveled, and there are a few buildings standing, but it is like a war zone. And it, you look at it and you think about how hot that fire burned and how fortunate we are that people were able to get out with so little notice. Um, it, it's absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, we'd heard that, but it was 90% of the village had been destroyed in the fire, those some of the early estimates. Did that is that what it looked like to you from the air?
7: certainly did, and, you know, um, as you're thinking about it, you think about... Um, no post office, no village office, no RCMP station, no ambulance station, no store, um, no houses, it it no medical services. It is absolutely incredible um, what's going to need to be supported as we move forward. And I am absolutely amazed at the resilience of the people of Lytton. And how anxious they are to um, get together and to um, look at the, what the next steps are.
1: It is truly a tragic situation. It must have been a shocking thing to, to fly over and look at the devastation caused there. Um, two confirmed fatalities in the fire so far. I mean, has everyone been accounted for, to your knowledge? It's my,
7: it's my understanding. I, I spoke to the mayor yesterday, and it's my understanding from him that um, they've done um, a site-to-site search. Um, I've heard no different than uh, the two that have been uh, confirmed, and I'm extremely hopeful that um, everyone else is safe.
1: Wow. Uh, That's some reassurance to hear there, because, I mean, two deaths is two too many, of course, and everyone will grieve for the two lives that were lost, but if it turns out, that no one else was was killed in this i i think maybe we can be a, a bit grateful for that because as you mentioned people had very little warning like what are you hearing from from the residents in terms of i mean people ran fled for their lives on moments notice here
7: yes i'm i'm hearing incredible stories of bravery uh wow. stories of helping each other out um just um being stunned um when they got away from the fire and down the road and uh, the the building they were meeting their family at was on fire and they had to move on. So it's been a particularly tragic uh, situation, uh, traumatic for everyone who's been a part of and, um, you know, the, the controversy over um, people going back in and um, that being provided by the TNRD. I think everybody's at a different um, stage in their in their process. And for people who feel a need to go back in and actually see what is left, um, I think the TNRD is doing the best they can. I've talked to Interior Health and the TNRD to ensure that there are um, there are counselling services for people who are um, taking part, and perhaps for those who aren't taking part, because people are traumatized, yeah. and um, it, you know, it, it. I know for people in the whole region, it brings back 2017 and 2018, and um, as soon as you see smoke, everyone gets that feeling, and and we had devastation during those years also, and um, I think that. That the TNRD has done an excellent job of trying to make sure that uh, everyone's accounted for, that processes are in place, but they also have to ensure that the community is safe for people to go into. And um, when I hear from from residents that talked about explosions all over the place, mm-hmm. and um, you know, hydro needs to go in. We need to look at water water sources, and we need to look at um, you know basic infrastructure like uh, water sewer water and sewer particularly so it's it's there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of people um, who are on top of this also
1: yeah it's interesting to hear your thoughts jackie about the the bus tour that's being arranged for survivors the people who fled uh, the village who want to return to Lytton to see what is left and as you heard in our news report there uh at at least one survivor thinking maybe it's not a good idea to to traumatize people again with on a bus tour but i mean i I can understand how some people want to return and see what's there and maybe some people just aren't ready for that yet right i mean what
7: yeah and i i think everyone has to has to do what's right for them right i think that uh you know the tnrd is trying to provide um an opportunity, uh, and and they're responding also to requests. I know that in 2017, uh, they took a bus uh, down into the Boston Flats trailer park, which had been burnt to the ground, and um, and then, I mean, I heard from people how devastating it was to to actually be on that bus, but they needed to see, and um, for some yeah. people, that's not where they're at. So I would urge everyone not to feel that they have to do it, right. but um, it's being offered for those who think that that's where they need to be.
1: Yeah, some I think some people may feel the need to to go and go and see for themselves, and maybe others yeah. maybe others want to wait, and I think they should be afforded that choice. Speaking to Jackie Taggart, the Liberal MLA uh, Fraser Nicola about the devastating fire that destroyed. Lytton, uh, the the liberals have been calling for a state of emergency to be declared uh, in the province. Is that still your thoughts on this right now?
7: Absolutely. I mean, uh, we not only flew down to Lytton, and I was in the helicopter with the premier, uh, Minister Farnworth, and Minister uh, Conroy. We uh, flew over the McKay Creek fire in in Lillooet, which has jumped the Fraser River and is threatening Pavilion uh, First Nations. We flew over um, the the Sparks Lake fire. We have a fire at Durand Lake. We had lightning last night. What we're saying is that we want the government to use every tool in the toolbox to be able to respond quickly and with everything they can, because we're on fire. And this is worse than 2017, and we're only at the beginning of July.
1: Uh, Jackie Taggart, thank you for coming on. My sympathies and support to everyone in uh, in your riding there in Fraser Nicola, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you.
7: Thank you so much.